Great. Okay, well, it's now time for our main Bible reading, and we're picking up in Romans uh, chapter 6. So, again, if you'd like to follow, I'm going to read from the ESV. <coughs> so, Romans chapter 6, um, starting at verse 1, says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we would also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Represent yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Well, do keep that uh, text open. We'll be looking at that together. And just to say there is an outline of where we are going in the um, um, uh, description box, a little PDF that's just got a, a brief outline. People use that to make notes, to help them to concentrate, but also something to uh, come back to in the week as you continue to reflect on uh, what Paul is saying. Also, at the end of the um, sermon, there have been opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments. We'll use a live chat um, on the screen. I can explain that when we get there. But as we go through, there's things um, that you want to ask about or comment on, then make it, uh, jot them down and then we can have um, a few minutes together after the sermon to further uh, be edified by God's word. Well, before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity now to look at your word together. And as your people, please would you help us to listen to it, to trust it, and to be obedient to it. And we ask this, that you might be seen amongst us as the God who is truthful, good, and rightly sovereign over us. Amen.
When I was an apprentice, I was reading uh, the book of Romans with an elderly man. Working through the early chapters, we discussed how we were all sinners and that the penalty for sin was death and judgment. But God the Father had sent his son to die in the place of his people and so take the penalty due to them upon himself. We talked about the implications of this, that those who put their trust in Jesus receive a full and free pardon from God. For all the sins that we have already committed and all the sins that we will commit, the gospel brings total forgiveness. Now to hear that, you might have thought that that would be a wonderful thing. But at this point, the gentleman objected. I don't remember exactly what he said, but the thing that troubled him was that this kind of free and full pardon would lead to immorality. If God will forgive whatever I do, then it doesn't really encourage me to do the right thing. I can do what I want. And at the end of the day, God will forgive me. I mean, in a way, he was rightly concerned that the gospel should transform people. But he was troubled that Paul's version of the gospel wouldn't lead to a transformed life. Now, his concern is, of course, the concern of the moralist. The moralist always thinks that it's rules and regulations that will stop immorality. The fear of the stick and the desire of the carrot, that's how the moralist is motivated to do good. But if the fear of the stick is removed, or the penalty has been taken away, and all the promises are ours, well, you'll never get people to be moral this way. If this gospel of full and free pardon is preached, then there will be no morality. Now, this objection to the gospel is anticipated by Paul, and it's what he deals with in this section of Romans that we're looking at this morning. However, Paul um, actually deals with a stronger case of this objection to the gospel. Have a look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The objection that Paul considers is not just that the gospel will lead to immorality, but actually that it encourages and in fact demands immorality. It's not just that I can go on sinning as much as I like and I'll be pardoned, but the more I do it, the more I sin, well, the more that I show how gracious God is. If you can put it like this, I'm doing God a favour. I'm letting the world know how gracious he is by putting up with a wretch like me. The more wretched I am, the more wonderful he is. The blacker I am, 
the more brightly God's grace is seen to be. Now you may recall that Paul has considered a similar objection already. Uh, flip back to me, uh, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Can you see this similarity uh, in the argument? Paul speaks as if his opponents are accusing him of this, that Paul's gospel encourages evil behaviour. It's a slanderous claim and a serious misrepresentation of Paul. Now back in chapter 3, he didn't answer his critics other than by saying that their condemnation is deserved. You know, the depravity of their thinking only demonstrates that they're under God's judgment. However, in chapter 6, Paul is happy to deal with the objection in some detail because it provides a wonderful opportunity to explain one of the outcomes of what it means to be a Christian, to be in Christ. Last week, we considered how we are all born in Adam. He is our default representative and his act of disobedience accounts for our life under the rule of sin and the consequences of sin, our death. Yet there is another Adam, a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he stands as a new representative of all who trust in him. That through his act of obedience, there is this transfer from being in Adam to being in Christ. And this objection to the gospel provides an opportunity to explore one of the, the outcomes of being in Christ. Now, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I wonder how would you deal with that objection? What is your reason for not going on sinning? Let's have a look at what Paul says, and he, he deals with the objection in three parts. Paul begins his response in verse 2 by a total denial of the argument. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? No way, never. That's response part one. From the beginning, Paul wants us to be in no doubt that we must never go on sinning, thinking that it will show up God's graciousness. Response part two is Paul's explanation of why the answer is no. And this explanation runs all the way to verse 11. And his reason is summarised in verse 2, where he says, <coughs> Romans 6 verse 2, How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Paul is talking here about how when somebody becomes a Christian, they are freed from the power and rule of sin. Back in chapter 3 verse 9, Paul concluded that all were under the power of sin, unable to live lives pleasing to God. But one of the consequences of being in Christ is that the Christian is no longer under the grip of sin. That's what Paul is referring to when he says in chapter 6 verse 2 that we died to sin. He's talking about how when we, when we became a Christian, a decisive definitive change happened. Our life under the power of sin ended. Now you can see that this is what he's talking about if you have a look at the way Paul speaks in the rest of this section. So for example at the end of verse 6 he talks about that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. The wonderful thing about being in Christ is not just that we are free from the penalty of sin, but we are also free from the power of sin. We who died to sin. And for that reason, Paul continues in chapter 6, verse 2, how can we still live in it? Now that we're free from the power of sin, why would we continue living with sin as our master? How can we? I mean, it makes no sense to continue in a life that is characterised by sin, according to an old life, which is dead. No longer fits. It's incongruous. Now it's in verses 3 to 11 that Paul explains why it is that the Christian is no longer under the power of sin. And there's quite a lot of detail in these verses, but the essence of what Paul's saying is very simple. Let me read again verses 3 and 4. So Romans chapter 6 verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now Paul uses the word baptism here to refer to water baptism, and it represents the conversion of a believer. It's not that baptism is necessary for salvation, but Paul assumes that when somebody becomes a Christian, they're baptised. And it's at our conversion that we are united to Christ. An unbreakable connection is made between the believer and Jesus Christ. And this union means that whatever happened to Jesus happens to the believer. So verse 3 talks about how a Christian has died with Christ. Our penalty for sin is dealt with. And verse 4 talks about how a Christian has been raised to new life. Just as Jesus rose from the grave with new life, so those in him have been raised to new life with him. You know, we're not waiting for the new life to start. It begun when we became a Christian. In other words, we died with Christ. Our penalty for sin was dealt with. 
we rose with Christ to a new life and now we have freedom from the power of sin. Now there can be a tendency to think very simply about the gospel in terms of sins forgiven. <clears throat> when we think about being a Christian we can think only in terms of being forgiven by God. I suspect that one of the reasons for this is a desire to have a very simple gospel that we can present to unbelievers that's easy for them to understand. And it's interesting that usually when Christians talk about death and resurrection, they're talking about Jesus and what happened to him. But here Paul is talking about the Christian and what happened to them. They too have died and been raised to new life. Now one aspect of these verses that can cause a bit of confusion is the different tenses that Paul uses. Sometimes he talks about these things that have already happened and sometimes he talks as if these things are yet to happen. So for example if you look at the end of verse 5 Paul says we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But then in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we will be resurrected, but we are alive now. Well, which is it? Have I been raised or haven't I been raised? Is it now or later? Well, the answer is, it is both. The Christian has already been raised with Christ and enjoys the blessings of no longer living under the power of sin. But there is a not yet. It's not until the return of Christ that the Christian will enjoy the fullness of all the blessings of the resurrection life. A resurrection body and a freedom not only from the power of sin, but from the presence of sin. And this future hope of the Christian explains why Paul stresses the certainty of it. Let's pick it up from verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In other words, our confidence of the fullness of resurrection life is as sure as the fact that Jesus was resurrected and is alive today. In the meantime, verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul tells the Christian that is how they're to think of themselves. Christian, not just forgiven, but free from the power of sin to live a new life for God. The third part of Paul's response is to go on the attack. Paul is not wanting to argue that the gospel doesn't encourage sinning but that it demands a life of right living. 
Romans 3 verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Just make three observations. The first is that this is the first time in the book of Romans that Paul has commanded his readers to behave in a certain way. In the first five chapters, Paul hasn't told them to do anything. I mean, he's told them of their predicament and he's told them what God has done for them. And it's only now that he tells them to behave in a certain way. And this ordering is very significant because it helps us understand what we think we're doing when we live in a way that pleases God. See, if Paul had begun his letter with a long list of do's, do this, do this, do this, we might conclude that we need to do these things in order to be something. We need to live righteous lives in order to be righteous. But Paul doesn't begin that way. Paul begins by telling us that we are unrighteous, but that God has acted to make us righteous and therefore we are to be righteous. In this way, to live righteous lives is to be what we are. You are righteous. You've been freed from the power of sin. So be righteous. The second thing is to note um, to note is the fact that Paul commands sorry the second thing is to note is that the fact that Paul commands Christians to not let sin reign in them assumes the presence of sin in the Christian. And this fits with what we considered earlier. We're now free from the power of sin, but we won't be free from its presence until the Lord Jesus returns. The Bible explains that Christians will experience the presence of sin in their lives. That's normal. The change is that we're no longer under its grip and therefore not to be ruled by it, but rather to be ruled by the Lord Jesus and offer ourselves to him. And the third thing to observe is the the wonderful totality of how the Christian is to use every part of them to pleasing God. I mean, just turn back for me uh, for a moment to chapter three. Um, and let me read three uh, from chapter three, verse 10. It's part of Paul's conclusion that describes the condition of people before conversion. So it says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Do you notice how every aspect of their person is offered to sin? Minds, wills, throats, tongues, lips, 
mouths, feet, eyes, all offered to sin. There was no part of a person that wasn't under the rule of sin. And people aren't born free, but under the grip of sin. And now wonderfully that grip of sin has been released for the Christian. Every part of me is free to serve the living God. My mind, my will, my mouth, my feet, my eyes. It's a wonderful truth. Well, as we conclude, what about, what about the habitual sins that we just can't imagine not doing? For many of us, there'll be patterns of sinful behaviour that are so ingrained in us that to be instructed to no longer sin that way, we think, nah, it's just not going to bear fruit. We feel that we must fail. Well, it's at the end of this section that Paul gives the promise of verse 14 that is valid for every believer at the present time. Have a look. For sin will have no dominion over you. Now, at the end of the verse um, really leads on to what Paul is going to say in the next section, which we'll look at next week. But for now, consider this wonderful promise. Sin will have no dominion over you, for you are no longer under law, but under grace. See, in view of the fact that there's been this transfer of rule from the rule of sin to the new life in Christ, sin is no longer our master. And it's on this promise that we stand and that as we no longer offer ourselves to sin but to God, we find that sin has lost its grip on us. And it comes as a great encouragement to pursue living this new life to God. Well, let's pray and I'll open out to any questions or comments that you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as Paul considers this objection to uh, your full and free pardon for sin, that he doesn't uh, relent and pull back on your graciousness, but rather uh, explains more about um, the implications of um, uh, Christ for um, the believer. We thank you, Father, rather than your, um, your full and free pardon uh, to your people, uh, encouraging sinful behaviour. It actually demands uh, a life lived, um, a righteousness uh, to you. We thank you that we are so tied up in Christ that we have died to sin, uh, that our old life is dead and we are no longer under the power of sin. And we thank you therefore that also being raised with Christ, we are now in a position to live a life that is pleasing to you 
to offer up our, our bodies in service to you. And we, Father, we thank you for this great promise that sin will have no dominion over us and pray that that would come as a great encouragement to each one of us to pursue living this new life uh, for your glory. Amen. <laughs>